Well, good morning. It is good to see you, good to be with you this morning. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We are in our series, Spiritual War. Now you know by now that life is war. Don't you? Like, yeah, it, life's not a box of chocolates, as, as Forrest Gump said. It, it, is actually, it is actually war. And especially for the Christians, that is really true because we are caught up in this cosmic war. Now, I had the privilege of opening up this series for you a few weeks ago. And at the introduction, I talked about how Paul, when he's writing the letter to the church in Ephesus, he starts out, by talking about the theology of salvation. And so you'll read in like Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Meaning because we had sinned and disobeyed God, we were separated from Him and therefore we were dead in our separation, in our sin and in our disobedience. But God made us alive in who? Christ. All right, And then it's going to say that it was nothing that we did, but it was Jesus and all of what he did that made us alive, and we are saved by grace through faith. So that's a theology of salvation. And so he's going to spend the first half of the, the, the letter to Ephesus by talking about the theology. But then he's going to talk about the spiritual formation of how this theology is fleshed out. And so he's going to talk about things like unity and marriage, and parenting, and vocation, of how, how when we are saved and made alive by Jesus, this is how his life impacts all areas of our life. And so he's going to talk about spiritual formation. But he's going to end his letter by talking about how we now put this all together. And I used basketball as an example of how we take the foundation, the fundamentals, and now we execute them functionally in life. And so that's what Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 is all about. It's how we live this victorious Christian life in all areas of our life. And then now we know that to do this, we have to put on something, right? We have to put on the armor of... All right. And then we, we have all of these pieces. And so last week, you should have covered the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Now, uh, on a side note, I, I, don't, I, I don't want us to view all of these pieces of armor as separate from one another, as if they're isolated. No, they are interrelated. They are connected to one another, because what they show us, and don't miss this, what they show us is how the gospel affects every part of our life as we are caught up in this cosmic war. And, if, and here's the thing. If we're going to live the victorious Christian life, wearing this armor is the way we allow the gospel to do its work in protecting, defending, fighting against the evil one. So I want you to realize that these, these pieces of armor is a way for us to look at how the gospel affects every area of our life. Now, I brought the snowman with me today because uh, I, I just Googled uh, ar you know, pieces of, of God's armor, and this is one of the images that Google gave me. I'm like, well, this is great because snow is on the ground. Let's go with a snowman 
soldiers. So today we're going to cover the gospel shoes and the shield of faith. Now, I created this kind of little, little saying to kind of help you remember gospel shoes and shield of faith. And here it goes. Gospel shoes and the shield of faith prepare one to stand and make the devil shake. There you go. Gospel shoes and the shield of faith prepare one to stand and make the devil shake. So you're going to say it with me on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Gospel shoes and the shield of faith prepare one to stand and make the devil shake. Because here's the thing. The the devil hates when we apply the gospel. Like the devil doesn't like us applying the gospel in every area of our life. Why? Because he knows that he is defeated, not by us, but by who? Jesus. So it makes one to stand and make the devil shake. So with that in mind, let's let's stand as we honor the reading of God's word. And we're going to start in verse because the the more we read Scripture, the more we go over it, the the more we remember it. Verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty what? Power. Power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to what? Stand. And after you've done everything, to stand. Verse 14, stand. Stand. I mean, you see the theme here? Stand, 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 stand. Stand firm then with the what? Belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Verse 15. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Let's pray, Jesus. As we gather together with your people and as we sit under the authority of your word, may you go to work, Spirit, shaping and forming our hearts that they might be more and more like Jesus. So our prayer is this, that we would leave different than when we came here this morning as a result of your work in our life through your word. For it's in your name we pray, our great God and King. Amen. You may be seated. So I thought I might do something a little different, at least at the beginning this morning. I thought I might show you of how when I approach a passage, particularly like, like a letter that Paul would write or others would write of how I sit down and how I just dissect it. And so uh, I, I put a, I'm going to put, a, yeah, here, here's the image of it. So this is verse 15, and this is kind of what I do at the very beginning. I just write out the verse. Now, as you can see, I have uh, verse uh, 14 that's listed there, stand firm, because everything that's going to come after this is going to actually go back to verse 14 of how we are to stand firm. So stand firm, dot, 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 there in verse 15. And with your feet 
fitted. All right, so, so now I know he's going to deal with our, our feet. And so, as you can see, I boxed in feet fitted. That word fitted, I put up to the side here to put on, to tie, or to wear. And so what, what should our feet be fitted with? Or what should, uh, what, what should our, our feet be kind of tied with? With the readiness. Now, with the readiness. Now, what does that mean? Readiness, you know, it means actually prepared or solid footing. So, so this morning I, I put on, I put on my shoes right here. And so I, I got ready. I got prepared to stand before you today. Now, but it's with the readiness that comes from where? The gospel of peace. So do you see how all of these qualifiers? So we have Feet fitted, you got to put on something so that you can be ready, so that you can be prepared to stand. And, and where does this readiness, though, come from? What kind of shoes are they? Gospel shoes. The gospel of peace. Now, the word gospel, we know that it's the Greek word euangelio. Everybody say euangelio. Man, you guys speaking in tongues this morning. I tell you, you guys, get, you know. No, it's the Greek word. And what does it mean? It means good news. Now, when you go back to antiquity, uh, what did that mean? Well, it meant announcement of victory. So what would happen is if a military had won a victory, then they would send a messenger and they would take the message of victory back to the city. All right, so what does this mean now biblically? Well, it means that the good news is that the king has come and won the victory, and so now we declare the victory that he's won. Well, what victory did the king win? And who's the king again? It's King Jesus. Jesus is the rightful king of planet Earth. Why? Because he created all things, and by him all things hold it together. But the creation rebelled against the king. But the king did not want to leave his creation in rebellion. So what did he do? He came to die for his creation. He came to die for rebels. He came to die for those who committed treason. And so he came, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for the sin of the world. He was buried for three days. Three days later, he rose again victoriously. And what was he victorious over? Sin, hell, and the grave. And so now the good news is that Jesus has won the victory over sin, meaning this, that he has restarted the reversal process of the curse of sin. That's the good news. And then do you see the, you see the description of peace? Now, what does peace mean? Well, it means shalom. It means harmony. It means tranquility. It means when all is as it should be. Meaning that the good news that Jesus has come to win and he has won the victory, it brings peace. It brings tranquility. It brings harmony. It makes everything as it should be. That, that, that's how I break down a passage. And the reason why I show you that is because you can do the same thing too. Like seriously, you can sit with your Bible in your hand and you don't even have to know all the Greek words. Like, I, I mean, I just know because I have some tools. It's not because I really paid attention in seminary years ago. But you can do this. You can break it down. And, it, and what happens is it makes it come alive. Now, I'm hesitant to show you the next picture. 
And the reason why I'm hesitant to show you the next picture is because I don't want you to judge me, okay? But, but I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to put a picture of my shoe collection. Okay, yeah. And I was thinking about this yesterday. Uh, I was missing three pair. I have basketball shoes, I have golf shoes, and I have really, really nasty yard shoes, which would make a total of 44 pair of shoes. I told you, don't judge me this morning. It was so funny, we were playing a marriage game uh, about two years ago, and one of the questions was, how many pairs of shoes does your spouse own? And my wife said, 30. I'm like, baby, there's no way I have 30 pairs. She's like, you got at least 30 pair. So I went and counted them that day, and it was not, yeah, it was not pretty. Now, what you say, Josh, why, uh, why are you showing us a pile of your shoes? Because I have shoes for every occasion. As you can see, I have blue shoes for when I wear my blue belt. I have gray shoes for when I wear my gray belt. Uh, I have snow. I have snowshoes, like the the black ugly ones in the very back. That's just for walking the dog. When it really comes a big snow, then I got some you know really nice wooly you know kind of snowshoes. And then as you can see, you know I got some. I mean, like I got shoes for every occasion. That's why I, somehow I forgot my basketball shoes and golf shoes. I want us to realize that gospel shoes they're meant for every occasion. Every single area of your life, you are to put on gospel shoes. And here's the truth of the matter. We long to have shoes for every occasion where we might experience peace, where we might experience harmony, where we might experience all as it should be. Just think about it. We, we, want, we want that peace in our marriage in our families, in our parenting, in our self-care, in our vocation. We, we want peace, harmony, and tranquility. We want flourishing. And see, the gospel shoes actually give us exactly that. And think about it also this way. Is that not only do they give us peace... But they advance peace. You're like, how do they even advance peace? And we'll, we'll, we'll explain all this in just a second. But I'll just give you a little imagery. The other day, we were at basketball practice, and we started this thing on Friday where the dad scrimmage the kids. And so I get there, and I'm putting on my basketball shoes. Well, I see one of the dads, he's in, he's in like these little loafer shoes, and I'm like, Oh, bro, man, I'm thinking to myself, you're going to break an ankle, you're going to slip, you're going to slide. I wasn't very peaceful about what he was wearing. And you probably, you've probably seen people where you're looking at their shoes and like, what kind of shoes? I mean, like you just, hey, here's the thing, is that when we wear the gospel shoes for every occasion and we live life as Jesus intended, it advances peace in the world because it shows the good news that King Jesus has come and he has done something in the world. So we'll get to that in just a second, but I thought I might just throw that in there early on. Now let me give you a picture of verse 16, all right? So we'll put up a picture of verse 16. And so we have, once again, stand firm. And then we have, in addition to all of this, 
Take up the shield of faith. Now, it's interesting because the NIV, and this is where you have to bring out multiple translations, okay? So I have the NIV, I have the CSB, I have the ESV, I have all the SVs, all right? I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just what, a, what a preacher has, all right? But, but it is interesting that the CSB translates in all circumstances or in every situation, So here's what I do know, even with these two translations, that Paul's getting at, hey, don't forget this, don't leave home without this, or in all circumstances, you need this. All right, what do you need? You need to take up, you you need to pick it up. What do you got to pick up? The shield of faith. Now, faith, well, what is faith? Well, faith is belief in something that you can't see. Faith is the anchor of, of who you are, what you put your faith into. It's your worldview. Even if you cannot see it, and that's usually what faith is, you cannot see it, as the author of Hebrews would say. Now, in this particular context, who's this faith in? It's, in, it's faith in Jesus. Well, we even see in chapter 2, verse 8, that you have been saved, I have been saved by grace through what? Faith. So, so the shield of faith, the, the same face, the faith through which you it received God's grace and were saved. So take up that type of shield. Now, why do you need to take up that kind of shield? Well, with which you can extinguish. Well, what does extinguish mean? It means stop, it means put out, it means suppress. All right, so I got to stop something. I've got to suppress something. I got to extinguish something. And what is that something? All. Turn to your name and say all. Do you know what all means in Greek? All. <laughs> That's what it means. So all the what? The flaming arrows. Now, this is very interesting. Flaming arrows? That, that, that seems to talk about something uh, of an aerial attack, something from long range, something uh, uh, of distance. Flaming arrows of what? The evil one. Satan's darts. Now this is interesting. So he tells you to take up the shield of faith so that you can stop, so that you can suppress, so that you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. What are those flaming arrows meant to do? To take your faith. So if he's telling you to take up the shield of faith, To extinguish, that means that it would only stand to reason that the implication would be that if you were hit by one of his flaming arrows, you would lose somehow your faith. Now, I'm not talking about you losing your salvation, although I think in some cases it would apply. Like if you look at Matthew chapter 13 and you see the parable of the sower, that there was one particular seed that fell and the evil one came and just plucked it up. So I think in some cases it could be, but I'm not saying that you lose your salvation because you lose your faith. You might go through a season of doubt. You might go through a season of depression. You might go through a season of spiritual lethargy because you've been hit by a flaming arrow of the evil one meant to take away your faith. Now, when I think about the shield of faith, and again, don't laugh at me, and maybe it's a little too, too, too much information, but here's the pick that, that came to my mind right here, uh, deodorant. This is deodorant, and even, even the M in the middle. Did you see that's a shield? That's the reason why I bought that deodorant, because I'm like, I need protection. <laughs> what I need protection from? I need protection from stinking it up. 
And so you wear, you wear deodorant for every occasion. You, you wear deodorant for work. You wear deodorant to work out. I hope you wear deodorant to work out. So here, here's the thing. So I want you to think about the, the shoes and the shield this way. That the gospel shoe is a shoe for every occasion and a shield for every situation. So when you look at verses 15 and 16, we have, we have shoes for every occasion and a shield for every situation so that we might stand in victory. That's awesome. That's great news. It's not some situations or some occasions. It's every. So here's what I want to do. For the remaining time, I want to unpack three truths regarding how the shoes and the shield are key to you and I living in victory. So you still ready? Say you're still ready. Still ready. All right. Number one, gospel shoes are necessary to stand in victory. So if you want to stand in victory as a believer, you need these shoes. Now, in antiquity, Roman soldiers... They had sandals, and they had to be strong enough to stand up to long marches and have sufficient grip to work in various terrains. Now, and here's what's interesting about the soles of their sandals. They actually had thick spikes. I, I like to think of golf shoes or, you know, soccer. I mean, they gave them very firm foundation, and it prevented them from slipping. So here's what I would like to ask is this. How then do we stand firm and not slip? Or another way to put it is, how can we know if we haven't put on the gospel shoes? So that's the question. How do we know when we don't put on the gospel shoes? So I'm so glad that you asked that question. I think there's at least three indicators that you or I have not put on gospel shoes. Indicator number one. We slip when we focus on works-based righteousness. So we think there are some people that would slip and fail to put on the shoes when they think because they read their Bibles, they prayed, they attended church, they gave, they're part of a small group that God loves them more. That's not true. Like I remember years ago, where I felt like I needed to pray and read my Bible so that God would give me a good day. And I would think to myself, because I didn't read my Bible and I didn't pray that morning, I was going to have a bad day. God was in some sense going to strike me down or something bad was going to happen in my life that day. That is works-based righteousness. When we think we're going to have a good day, that God's going to give us good, a good day because of what we did, that is works-based righteousness. Do you know that God doesn't love you any more or any less because you do this or do that? That God loves you the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why? Because he loved you and demonstrated his love for you that while you were a sinner, Jesus died for you. So regardless of whether you read your Bible, you pray, you give, you attend all kinds of small groups, it doesn't make God accept you or love you anymore. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not telling you don't read your Bible, don't pray, don't go to church. 
What I am telling you is don't rely on them to make you acceptable in God's sight. You do those things because you are already accepted in God's sight. And these are ways that you exercise the spiritual muscles so that the Spirit of God might form you and forge you more into the image of Jesus. That's why you do those things. I love what Jerry Bridges says. He says, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. So we slip when we fall into this works-based righteousness. B, we slip when we fall into contradictory gospel living. Now, when I think about this, I think about Galatians chapter 2. And here's what happened in Galatians chapter 2. Peter is in Antioch, and Paul, he comes to Antioch where Peter is, and Peter, he's hanging out with the Gentiles, and he's having, he's having the time of his life. You know why? Because he's been introduced to barbecue. I mean, so they're having these pig roasts. They're having bacon, omelets. I mean, it's just amazing. They're using the green egg. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm reading into a little bit of the story, just FYI. But he's hanging out with Gentiles because Jesus has declared all food clean, all people clean. He has torn down the dividing wall. And so Peter is. He's having the time of his life. Well, Paul gets there and he's hanging out. He's seeing this. But then a little while later, there's a group of Jews who come to Antioch. And you know what Peter does when these group of elite Jewish Christians come? He stops hanging out with Gentiles. He stops going to barbecues. He stops eating bacon. He stops all that because he's afraid of what the Jewish elites might think. And you know what Paul says to him? He says this, but when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel. So, so Peter, he slipped falling into contradictory gospel living. That the gospel had torn down dividing walls to make Gentiles and Jews one. But Peter was acting contrary to that. You see, when we don't live lives that measure up to gospel living, we fail to put gospel shoes on. And this happens in all kinds of areas. This happens in our sexuality. This happens in our marriage. I, I, I just remember so many times. I've been married over 16 years. And there, there would be just arguments that Joni and I have. Now, we haven't had one in a while because I think I'm learning just to say, yes, ma'am, you're right. I think, I think that's what, what, what I... What, what I attribute the peacefulness being to. But, but there would be times where we would just get in an argument and I would say something that, you know, was just sinful and fleshly. And then we, you know, then, you know, how it is, we, we have the silent treatment that we give one another. But in that silence, guess what happened? The Spirit of God brought conviction upon me. Because I had lived contrary to the gospel. Because I did not love my wife as Christ loved the church. We do this in the treatment of others, gossip, slander, racism. We do that in disunity, even in the body of Christ. We do that with greed, when we're stingy with what we have, and when we fail to realize that what we have is really God's and we're just stewards of it, when we live self-centered lives. Those are contradictory to the gospel. And just, just on a side note, when we live contrary to the gospel, if we are in Jesus, guess what happens? It always happens. The Spirit of God brings conviction. 
Because when we live contrary to the gospel, there is no peace. And if the Spirit of God lives in us to bring us peace and we're living contrary to the gospel, it's going to convict us to get us back on track for peace. Does that make sense? Okay. You guys looking at me, some of you looking at me like deers in the headlights. You learning this morning? All right. Third way we slip. We slip, and don't, oh, don't miss this. We slip when we fall into accidental pharisaical judgmentalism. Big word, but it happens all the time in churches. It's when our zeal for Jesus is used as a judgmental weapon against others for their so-called lack of zeal. Larry Osborne, he writes about this in his book, Accidental Pharisees. And he talks about these groups. And what I've done is that I, I've listed five groups myself and I've either borrowed from him, adjusted his, or I've even added to it. I'm going to give you five groups. And you might, I might be talking to some of you and you might, feel, you might find yourself in one of these groups. But, but here's the thing. I'll get to it at the end. So I, I won't spoil it. But, but group number one is radical Christians. Now, I don't know if you remember this book uh, years ago. David Platt wrote a book, Radical. And basically, it slammed the American dream. And so these Christians, they start having this metric that, hey, if you really want to follow Jesus, you're going to deny the American dream, and you're going to do what Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do, sell all you have, live simple lives. And that might be good because it, that might be good for one person. That might not be good for every person because Jesus didn't call every person to do what the rich young ruler was called to do. But here's what happens is that they start putting that yoke and that burden on every single other person that would claim Christ. So, that, so you have radical Christians. Second one, you have the overcommitted Christians. They are at church all the time. They are super committed and they serve faithfully, even to the point that they miss corporate worship gatherings because maybe they're back in the children's area. Maybe they're hospitality. I, I don't know, but they even miss corporate worship gatherings because there's not enough people to serve. And they lead multiple small groups since no one else does. But here's what happens. Over time, their heart moves from doing it out of the overflow to now moving to doing it out of obligation. And when this happens, when they start doing it out of obligation, resentment grows towards those who are not as committed. And so then they now have a chip on their shoulder and they're like, you're not committed, you're not committed, you're not committed. Where are you serving? You're not serving anyway, you, you know. And so they have now this hard heart. Happens all the time in church. I've been past for 12 years. I've seen it. Missional Christians. They want to know what you do and to fulfill the mission of God. And so they're at every soup kitchen. They're volunteering to tutor at risk kids. They even move their family into a lower income part of the neighborhood. They put their children in underperforming schools. And if you're not doing what they're doing, they're looking at you like, what's wrong with you? Didn't Jesus tell you to do not? I mean, and then they start judging other people for their missional lifestyle. What about this group? Theologically superior Christians. Oh, man, they know the Greek. They know the Hebrew. They have their theological grid. 
If they're reformed, they know the tulip forward and backwards. And then, and then they'll start rattling out total depravity, uncondemned, limited time. And then they're like, hey, you, you reformed? Oh, I'm going to tell you what, you need to be reformed. And then they'll start throwing out people like John Piper. They'll start throwing out people like John MacArthur. And they'll start quoting. And then they'll hear sermons. And then they'll want to argue with the preacher because he didn't do exactly what John MacArthur or John Piper did. And so they feel like they are elite and superior because they have a little bit of knowledge. And then the last one is politically motivated Christians. They want to label people's spiritual maturity on the party that they identify with. As if Jesus was a Republican. Or as if Jesus was a Democrat. Let me tell you, Jesus, he's of the lion and the lamb. He's not a donkey. He's not an elephant. So... Now, here's the thing about slipping. Remember, slipping, not putting the gospel shoes on. I'm not saying any of these things, and Larry Osborne is not saying any of these things are bad. But we cannot make our passions the litmus test of committed Christianity. And anytime we do, we fail to put on gospel shoes. Let me just, I wrote down this statement. Spiritual maturity, please, come, everybody come in here. Come here. Spiritual maturity isn't about doing Christian things. Spiritual maturity is about looking more like Christ. And there is a big difference. Is that at the end of the day, the question is, have you done all of these things? That's not the question. The question is, do you look like Jesus? That's the question. And that's the most important question a Christian can ask him or herself. So, that's number one. Number two, gospel shoes are necessary to advance victory. Gospel shoes are necessary to advance victory. Now, these shoes that the Roman soldiers would wear, they were built for long marches and stability in fighting. So thus, they were a key component to advancing the military forward and advancing Rome. Now, when I think about this idea of gospel shoes being used to advance something, uh, something I think of 2 Corinthians 2. And here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of knowledge of him everywhere. So Christ's triumphal procession. Christ has won the victory. Christ has won the victory. And as we march in his triumphal procession, there's this aroma that is hitting all those people watching the triumphal procession. Jesus has had the victory. Jesus has had the victory. Now, as Paul would say, to some, that's the aroma of death. But then to some, that's the aroma of life. You see, and that's what we do. We are part of this triumphal procession that is advancing the victory of Christ to every nation on planet 
earth. You see, part of the mission of the church is to declare, to proclaim the good news of King Jesus, that he has come to reverse the curse. Because here's what we all know intuitively. Life is not what it should be. We know that. And I know that we live in a culture where it's it's kind of hard for people to share their brokenness. It's kind of hard for people to share their weaknesses. But but at the end of the day, when we sit down and when we really reflect about our life, we know that there's something in our life that's not what should be. And see, what Jesus does is he advances the, the aroma of victory and peace through his church. So here's the question, though. Why don't we advance the good news of peace that is only found in Jesus? Because if you read the statistics... Only a handful of believers are actually advancing the good news. They're actually sharing the faith. So here are some thoughts that I have, and they are based upon Genesis 3. You're like, Josh, Genesis 3? There's no evangelism in Genesis 3. Yes, there is. You know how I know this? Because I read Psalm 19 where it says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And as human beings, we were created in the image of God to reflect this glory. So innate within image bearers is this evangelistic tendency to declare and to reflect God's glory. But what we see in Genesis 3 is that when we fail to reflect God's glory, we have a hard time declaring God's glory. So so here's the thing. Why don't we share the gospel? Well, when we are skeptical of who God is, we're not going to share. So when Satan was tempting Eve, he started with trying to question God's goodness. And so Eve is actually now falling into this trap, questioning God's goodness. When we question God's goodness, when we question anything about God, it's hard for us to share what we are skeptical of. When we are seduced by sin, we do not share. So when she is seduced by the fruit, it's going to be hard to declare God's glory. Listen, when we, when you, when I, when we are seduced by sin, we're not going to share the good news of King Jesus. All right, here's the third. When we live in sin and shame. So when Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? They run and hide. Listen, if we are hiding from God because we are ashamed of what we have done, we're not going to share. And then the last reason why we don't share, and this is a big one for the church, is when we have relational strife, we won't share the good news of King Jesus. And what we see in Genesis 3 and even the consequences of Genesis 3 is that there's this relational strife between Adam and Eve. And when there is relational strife, we're not going to declare another relationship. And this is why it's so big for the church today. Because I believe that the majority of churches are living in relational strife based upon secondary and tertiary issues in the church. And when there is strife in the church, there is no mission from the church. Am I preaching this morning? Okay. You okay? Okay. I have some other thoughts, but I'll leave it at that. Number three, the shield of faith is necessary. The shield of faith is necessary to live in victory. All right, so gospel shoes 
necessary to stand and advance victory. Now, now the shield of faith, it's necessary to live in victory. And let me just kind of bridge the gap from the second point to this point, because I think it is important. Do you realize that, in, that, that, that really when we have an evangelism problem, it's not that we have an evangelism problem, we have a God problem. And if we have a God problem, that means we have a gospel problem. And if we have a gospel problem, and here's the thing, Paul knew this, that if we have a gospel problem, then we need the shield of faith. So that's how they're tied together. And so Paul says, in addition to all these things, or in every situation, take up the shield. Now, I love what John writes in his letter. He says, For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. That, that's, how, that's how we do it. We, we achieve victory through our faith. Now, Roman shields, as one author put it, were the most effective line of defense that the Roman warriors used. Now, think about that. So, as they, as they are marching towards the enemy, and they start seeing the flaming arrows come, these shields would protect them. Now, what are the flaming arrows of Satan that attack our faith? Let me just give you a few, and I'm done. How can you believe in God that would send people to hell? I mean, Aaron Rodgers even said that this past week. And I know you guys don't like Aaron Rodgers, but he said that. He's like, I don't know how people believe in a God who would send people to hell. If God was really good, there wouldn't be suffering. If God really loved you, you wouldn't be sick. If God was really in control, he wouldn't let you get cancer. If God really cared about you, you see all that? Those, those, those are attacks on your faith. Other areas that Satan attacks our faith is the worries and cares of this world, the lust of flesh and the pride of life, getting entangled in things that shouldn't be a priority. Here's another one. Other believers who don't have their gospel shoes on. I've, I've seen it so many times where people, where Christians actually begin to lose faith because they see other Christians who don't put on the gospel shoes. Well, pastors and church leaders, man, they just fall morally. You know, but that, those believers, they support that political party. My Christian parents, you ought to see them. They, they were so devout in their church attendance, but you should have saw their lifestyle behind the scenes. And see, what happens when we are attacked and we don't have the shield, we end up taking our eyes off Jesus and putting them onto other things. Now, the last thing I'm going to say is this. The, the most effective way to use the shield is to use it with other shields. Put up this pic right here. That's a, that, that is a uh, scene from The Gladiator. But this was a way that the Roman army would protect themselves. See, the most effective way to take up the shield of faith is to do it with one another. You say, why do I need the church? That's why. That's why. 
See, it's with us together, we can say things like this in a perfect chorus. Though he slay me, yet shall I hope. My Redeemer lives and one day will raise me up. That my God is for me, who then can be against me? He who lives in me is greater than he who lives in the world. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. What does it profit me if I gain the whole world and lose my soul? There might be sorrow for the night but joy comes in the morning. My heart and flesh may fail, but my God, he never will. People may disappoint me, but my God, he is a promise keeper, a head lifter, a faithful friend and father. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And where he is one day, we will be as well. And so as we sing that together with a chorus of believers, we take up the shield of faith so that we can advance the gospel of peace so that we can stand in the gospel of peace. And that is how we live in victory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us what we need for victory. To live in it, to advance it, to protect it in our lives. May we apply it as a church, as individual believers. You are good. You're good. And we're so grateful of how good you are and that you give us everything that we need for life and godliness today.